translating to me becoming a better investor. And so, and there's something that I know I have a unique um, level of sort of confidence on that I know make me not only a better investor on an absolute basis, but also on a relative basis. The other thing which is really cool about a book that I think is unique is that books have a sort of permanence relative to the effort. And so you write the book and then, you know, you know, let's say the book does moderately well, it's in print for 10 years. You don't have to keep rewriting the book, right? And so Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Alan Gannett. Alan, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, man. So I want to hear about your investing. I want to hear about your book, even though I know it's not brand new. And the businesses you used to run, there's a lot of things to cover here. Why don't we, how do you introduce yourself to people typically? Yeah, it's funny because I think that we spend a lot of time talk, thinking about like our identity and so much of that is tied in with work. So I always actually find this question sort of interesting because I find I've sort of transitioned to having more of a portfolio of projects. And I find it can sometimes be like kind of confusing for people, right? There's this sort of like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, no, no, I do like multiple things. And so like the, the two things I do primarily, and there's other things, but the two things I do primarily are I'm an author. Uh, I wrote a book called The Creative Curve, which is a sort of pop psychology look at where creativity comes from and how we can nurture our creativity. It's been out for a few years. It's in, I think, like 10 languages now. It's like, it's a fun, but very like data informed book. And then I do a lot of startup investing. So I invest in about two to three sort of pre-seed or seed stage startups every month. And, you know, and then I do sort of speaking and some of the typical sort of author stuff. But yeah, I'd say like my two main hats are sort of like, you know, writing and investing. And, and tell us about your previous business world life. Yeah. So I, for six and a half years, I ran a venture backed company that was in the marketing analytics space. So we helped big consumer brands ranging from like, GE to the MBA, you know, figure out how their marketing was performing and what was resonating with their audiences. And so I've always been really fascinated by this sort of question of things that seem very organic, you know, whether that's sort of the stories you tell as a marketer or creativity, what are sort of the systems, what are the processes, how can we reverse engineer and apply more logic to those things? And so that's sort of very much my filter was our how, how I approach the world. And so yeah, I ran there for six and a half years. In 2018, we merged with Skyward, which is a PE-backed content marketing platform. And then I stayed there for the amount of time I needed to stay there. So I'm interested, I'm interested when you think about Track Maven and, and how many startups don't make it, how many new businesses don't make it, what do you attribute, what do you attribute your ability to stay alive and then stay alive long enough to succeed there with? Yeah. So it's really interesting. I mean, I, I think about that story is still not finished. Like one of the interesting things with like doing a merger versus like an exit is like, you know, it's like our investors now have stock in this sort of combined companies. So it's sort of like the, the journey is still being written, which is intellectually sort of an interesting part of the startup narrative because we don't talk about it that much. But, you know, the company, you know, track me even, you know, we raised $22 million in venture capital, primarily from NEA who a few years ago, I think now SoftBank's beat them, but was the biggest venture fund in the world. And, you know, the thing that was always interesting was for me was like, you know, we did a really good job of understanding who our customer was and building for them. 
the places where I learned a lot of lessons and sort of hard fought lessons now as an investor, I'm really mindful of is we didn't always do the best job of sort of keeping up and always sort of iterating. So we found product market fit very quickly in the business. And, you know, we grew, I think we went from zero to hundred people in something like two and a half years, something sort of nutso. And then we got into a lot of, a lot of tailwinds, headwinds, headwinds, that's the word headwinds where our market was changing really quickly. And it was hard for us to keep up with that. And I sort of thought wrongly that product market fit was this sort of static thing that once you get it, you know, you get to stay with it. And so, you know, I think that's where, for me at least, a lot of the success in business comes from that ability to keep iterating. And so now as an investor, I spend a lot of energy looking at product velocity. How often are teams shipping? What are they doing? How quickly are they changing the product and reacting to customers? Because these technology markets are super dynamic and super competitive. So it's been fun for me to be able to have so many VCs on the show and and authors from the tech world because, well, I'm fascinated with that space and I've done startups. I haven't done like the VC startup world, the the tech startup world, right? Mine's more like, like the commercial real estate fund that we run now, or I used to run an energy focused private equity fund in Canada, right? So it's... So it got some overlap, but but really it's it's different. So like when I get to have like Steve Blank on to come like, you know, I read the startup owner's manual for all these years and then I get to have him on and it's like, you realize this happens to me all the time. I'll, do, I'll show you. I get like my favorite authors on the show and I'm like expecting like some new nugget. Like when I read their book for the first time, it's like, and it like changed my world. Right? And I'm always like slightly disappointed that there isn't this like <laughs> this like great new secret that they weren't going to tell anyone until they got on my show. Okay. <laughs> you think I learned from this? But yeah. but the thing that I like chapter ten in the book. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, the bonus chapter I didn't put in. That's what I'm always waiting for. It's like, <laughs> oh, that other secret that's just as good as everything I've been listening to them on YouTube for the last eighteen years, right? It asked six years, whatever it is. But the thing that I'm regularly shocked by is they live their principles harder than I mm. thought. You know, mm. so so Steve Blank, right? Customer discovery. I'm like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm not. I'm not just pitching people. I'm I'm calling my friends and saying, like, do you think this is actually going to sell? Would you buy it? Whatever, right? And and really like giving myself a pass on like I didn't actually ask for a check. They just said they would. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like this. And then you get him on, and he's like, well, I make my students do a hundred of these in ten weeks. And you're like, oh, really? <laughs> and then he's like, but for me, for my companies. I would do between 200 to 300 for myself. Like, oh my God. Oh, that's stressful. Not, not a half dozen. You didn't do, you didn't do like eight, Steve, you know? Um, so I'm interested. Do you think that, do you think that what you did at track Maven and writing the book helped you live it harder? Or do you think that it was, or do you think that you were anyways in the book is more just the outgrowth of, of your life? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the book, you know, sort of one of the core tenets of the book is that we think of creativity as an individual phenomenon and in reality, creativity is very much a group phenomenon. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. So, you know, one is that, you know, creativity and craft are different. So creativity is about creating something that has an impact on an audience and that inherently then is a social dynamic. And so there's gatekeepers, there's promoters, there's people who boost your reputation and you look at this in startup land and there's things like board of advisors, there's your team, there's employees, there's investors, there's a lot of people involved in that sort of creative endeavor. And so one thing for me that I found was in writing the book 
was I was experiencing both in the writing of the book and the running of the company. I was definitely experiencing things I was talking about and learning as I was writing, right? So with a book, for example, I actually think a book is such a wonderful example because there's one name on the cover of a book. But in reality, a book is not a solo activity. So here's how it looks for most authors. They have a research assistant, maybe an actual assistant. They obviously write. They have a copy editor. They have an editor editor who is the terminology is we use a developmental editor where they're doing more sort of like structural and narrative work with you. Then you have people laying out the book. You have people designing the cover. You have people literally printing it. You have people marketing it. The fact that just the author's name on the cover is really a social construct of who we give credit to. And in different fields, we apply credit differently. So for example, in Broadway, we give credit to the director, the writer, and the producers. What's interesting is that the producers in most Broadway shows, the producers are really just the people who invested in the show, except for usually the main producer. So it's almost as if, and they like, if this show wins a Tony, all the producers get a Tony. So it's sort of like, imagine if in startup land, we called every angel investor a co-founder. That's sort of how Broadway works. So there's just, if you look at these different industries, these different creative fields, what you see is that we apply and we give credit to people in very different ways. And those ways are basically just sort of social norms that have evolved over time. Once you realize that, it sort of opens your eyes to the fact that any creative field that you want to pursue, you need to have people around you. Those could be collaborators, those could be promoters, those could be people who are assisting you, whatever it is. And for me, that was a really big understanding and awakening because it helped me sort of contextualize all of the things that you do when running a startup or when building and marketing a book that are really people involved. Yeah. So I'm interested in how that, and I want to talk more about you're speaking now and the investing you're doing now, but thinking about Track Maven and getting to this point where somebody wants to acquire you, do this merger type of thing, right? What do you think that you did different that not everybody else does? You know, because statistically, you're, you're, way, you're a super outlier, right? Statistically. Yeah. What do you think you did that not everyone else does? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I tend to think of, I'm a pretty self-critical person. So it's hard for me to talk about the positives. Like I think about all the things could have done differently or done better, which is not a great character trait, right? And so the things that we did well, I think were an early focus on team and sort of hiring and building a really strong company culture and building a culture that people wanted to refer other people to and all of that stuff. I think What's interesting is like what constitutes the right way to sort of build a team is different in different stages of the business. And I didn't SEO always do a great job of sort of iterating on that. The other thing we did that I think was a really positive thing was we had sort of this point around community. We had incredible board members. And so our board had a VC who has was the VC behind many of the biggest software as a service exits of all time. Then we had over the years, we had four different people who were either founders or CEOs of software as a service businesses, which is the category when that were billion dollar plus companies. And having that experience or that wisdom was like this huge accelerant because there's so many things that you learn building a company that if you can avoid starting from scratch, and these things can be big or small, you know, they can be things like how do you structure an account management team? Or they can be things like how do you position your company in a fundraising round or narrative? You know, so it's really can be all over the place, but being able to essentially sort of skip a lot of hard fought lessons and sort of absorb those from other people was a huge positive for the business and something I did pretty early. And I'm really glad I did. I think that had a really big 
sort of uh, momentum builder for the business? For those of us who, you know, are good enough at ignoring statistics to do a startup, right? And we've got like enough boldness to do things that everyone tells us is dumb or, or you know, this kind of like pioneer spirit or whatever, right? Any advice for helping us embrace enough humility to listen and to like intentionally seek out? Yeah, it's really hard. It's something I've, I've thought a lot about because at times I feel like I'm really good at it and times I'm terrible at it. And so why are those different things? Well, I've learned that in some situations, I'm good at divorcing my ego from it, where I don't take it per- as a reflection of me personally. And s- sometimes I'm not good at doing that. And the, the common element behind the times when I'm good at doing that are that I view it as a required part of the journey. So for example, with writing, with writing, I am very comfortable getting incredibly harsh feedback. In fact, I want it because I know that it makes my writing better. I know that it makes my writing better. I know that's a necessary step that all the you know, best writers have feedback readers. They're really diligent about getting feedback. So I know it's part of the process. And I know that it's sort of an input leading to an outcome. And I also get feedback from a lot of people. So I start to see patterns or data points, which makes it again, feel slightly less personal. I think where I can be bad at receiving feedback are cases when I don't have as much data points. And it's more about me as sort of a person, which I think when you're leading a company, it can often feel like you, the CEO, and you, the person are synonymous. And I think you have to learn that there's some disassociation that happens there. There's some ability that I think is healthy to sort of be, okay, in my role as CEO, right, I have to be more conflict seeking than I am as a human being in my personal life, right? Or as a CEO, I have to be, you know, insert whatever trait here. And that sort of version of me, that sort of professional version of me is something that is uh, iterating, it's in process and feedback is useful to that because I know it's going to get better. And so I think a lot about this idea of trying to change your mindset when you're working on something creative, and obviously yourself as a leader, I think is one of those things, thinking of everything as a process or a journey, I think makes receiving feedback much, much, much easier. Yeah, can you can you speak more about this? The idea of embracing that it's a journey. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down on the you know on creative outputs or creative products. I think there's a element of underlying confidence that you need, right, in order to do this. So you have to know I'm a good writer, you know, for example. And so, like, one of the questions is like, how do you build that confidence? Well, like, start small is the answer, right? So I wrote an online column for FastCompany.com for a long time. I was doing a lot of writing. I had sold the book proposal. Like I knew I was a good writer. And so receiving the feedback was like fine because I knew it was part of the process and was part of the journey. I had this sort of underlying sense of confidence. I think when it comes to more personal or more leadership oriented things, I think the hard part is that oftentimes that baseline level of confidence is something that comes more from like childhood and sort of the fundamentals of our personality and can be really hard. So that's why I actually think one of the big things for most CEOs is that if they're bad at receiving feedback, usually one of the key things that I would suggest is like you should go to therapy. Because usually what that really is saying is that there's some underlying work for you to do to feel a stronger sense of confidence on yourself that any sort of one individual piece of feedback on your leadership style isn't a reflection back to you. And so I think therapy is a really powerful tool for CEOs. I think what's cool is that depending on your health insurance, a lot of times it's covered health insurance while executive coaching isn't. I think a lot of times it can serve a pretty similar purpose. And so that's usually something where if you're struggling to receive the feedback, 
usually there's a missing baseline of confidence. And I think, you know, working on developing that baseline is sort of the critical first step. Mm. I think about my failings as like a 28 year old CEO of a private equity fund. You know, like I remember going to one meeting, somebody asked if my dad was coming. I was like, <laughs> no, actually it's, I'm the CEO, right? My, <laughs> my one partner mentor is like 16 years older than me. So everybody immediately looks to him to start every meeting, you know, and he's like, actually, yeah. no, talk, talk to Jess, right? But I had all these insecurities and not that I'm completely over them, but hopefully I've made some progress. One of the best books that ever helped me with that, by the way, is called Bonds That Make Us Free by mm. Terry Warner. And yeah, check it out. a lot of people don't know it, but everyone who do, does know it seems to love it. Really into so, it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a it, good sign. It just made me think of that. So when you think about this experience that you had and, and what you're doing now on the investing side, what, what's kind of your internal mandate or what, you know, what's between the goalposts of what you want to have a look at? Yeah. So, you know, I invest cross sector, cross geography. It's, I'd say 70% consumer, but like 30% B2B. So it's still a lot of B2B, which sometimes people are surprised by because I ran a B2B software company, but I also wrote a book that's essentially about consumer trends, right? So I feel like I have a good understanding of sort of that. And it's really, I mean, it's changed. I mean, I'd say that the two sort of defining things for me have been with consumer investing, I tend to invest in things that at the time feel quirky, right? That's sort of a good barometer of, I feel like, because at the stage I'm investing in, which is usually the first round, often the first check in the first round, it's really early. And so if it doesn't feel quirky, it's probably too late to be starting new companies in that sort of category or space, on the B2B side, I look for boring. So I find that B2B goes through pretty extreme venture capital cycles. So if you look at, for example, sales software, sales software right now, it's just there's so much late stage money pouring into it. And I think a common mistake that entrepreneurs make is they say, okay, there's all these sales tech companies raising $200 million. So sales tech is a good space to be in. But that company was started five years ago, right? And so if you think about the starting stage, at the time they were starting it, that was a boring, boring category. And you saw this with MarTech, which is obviously the category my company is, where I, when I started it, MarTech was kind of boring. And by 2015, MarTech was like the hottest category in venture capital. There was tons of money pouring into it. And then obviously that always then precipitates a cliff down, where all of a sudden the category people are like, oh, that's too scary. It's overfunded. But you don't want to be the last person to start a sales tech company. Like, that's not a good idea. So with B2B, I tend to look for boring uh, there's a lot of other things there, you know, it would be to be, I want core workflow. I want software, you know, I, I like companies that sort of generate revenue, but those are all sort of the obvious things. But the, the thing that I think is maybe non-obvious is it should be boring, right? Those are where you can build really, really big B2B companies. For people not familiar with the term, how do you define core, work, core workflow? Yeah. So core workflow would be if you, for example, were a factory, right? You have software that manages your employees, you know, checking in and out of their time, right? You also have software that manages your sort of raw materials inventory and tracks its sort of usage and spoilage throughout the sort of manufacturing process. Both of those examples are core workflow. So, you know, those are things that essentially the business needs in order to operate. And the reason why those are good B2B investments is that a lot of the sort of magic in B2B investing comes from a customer using your software for eight, nine, or 10 years, where, you know, you spend a bunch of money to acquire the customer. And then by year two, three, or four, you know, it's essentially 80% margin. It's highly, highly profitable. So maintaining that customer is really important. And core workflow, because it's 
core is something that companies are much less likely to make changes around or must much less likely to, you know, you know, pull you out just because versus if you're non-core workflow, what happens is that a lot of times you can get some early traction because you're sort of falling into sort of experimental budget. Maybe the early adopters are like, let's try this. But then what happens is there's a new thing they want to try. And since you're not core workflow, you're where they go to reallocate budget and they rip you out. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that approach for uh, the B2B space. Like on the show, I'm constantly talking about Warren Buffett because he's kind of my business hero. Right. But also Bruce Flat. Do you know Brookfield Asset Management? Oh, so, Brookfield. Yeah. Yeah. I know Brookfield. Yeah. You know, it's raised like almost $600 billion. Right. And by essentially yeah. taking those Warren Buffett principles to real asset investing. And like they've got this poster hanging in lots of their offices around the world. It's got all these sheep kind of falling off this cliff. And there's this one black sheep going the other direction and says, excuse me. <laughs> and he's saying like, excuse me. And like, if you listen to Bruce Flatt's Google talk, he says that, that like, basically they try to walk away from the cliff, like walking away from the cliff of low returns, because when everybody else is bidding something up, you can't expect high returns doing it. Totally. My, my boyfriend actually works at Brookfield. So I actually like have heard their name Brookfield a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So, so my question for you next is on the consumer side, tell me more about, you know, either what your wins have been or what you're most interested in. Yeah. So my biggest, you know, I've had a consumer uh, unicorn that's in the sort of telehealth space. So, I, you know, digital health, I think is interesting. I actually think, but that's a category where now it's a little overfunded. I did that investment 2019. Which one's um, that one? Can't tell you. It's about oh. to announce the round that closed. Oh, okay. so, but, and then I have a, on the B2B side, I'm an investor in Zos Trucks, which is going public through a SPAC merger next month. And they are a electric truck and fleet as a service business. So, you know, they're right now sort of in the sort of process with FedEx, UPS, Amazon, where they're trying out those trucks and seeing if it's going to become part of their fleet. And that's sort of B2B. So, you know, my first sort of... Sorry, who's manufacturing the electric truck? Zos. So Zos, the company okay. I'm an investor. In. Yeah, yeah. So those are my two biggest sort of consumer and B2B wins. And so, yeah, on the consumer side, you know, the thing I found, which is interesting, a big thing I talk about in my book is that there is these sort of very clear trends to how consumers adopt things. And these trends have repeated forever and they're pretty predictable and understandable. And the issue is that big companies and, and investors tend to pile into trends that are currently on trends. So like an example I, I like to give is, you know, NFTs, right? So NFTs, you know, in January and February reached this sort of fever pitch. And if you were a late stage NFT company, it's been around for three or four years this is great for you, right? You're probably seeing all sorts of business. You're able to raise lots of additional capital. And you know, long-term, that capital will probably lead to you being really successful. The issue is that a lot of people also started NFT companies during that space, right? And they're like, well, look, there's all this money. And they actually probably could raise money from VCs, even at the early stage. But then what we saw you know, two months later is that NFT market has crashed and will take a long time to come back. And so now you have all these companies that are way too early in their life cycle relative to where the consumer life cycle is. And so that is a really interesting phenomenon. And so that's why when I said from an investment sort of frame perspective, I'm really focused on quirky is that, you know, if you had invested in NFT companies, which I, I did not, I've been, I've been like really bad with crypto. I just like, I was skeptical for way too long, which is like a dumb mistake. But if you think about NFT companies, the time to invest in NFT company was like 2018. 
right? Those companies are now the ones that are doing phenomenal, right? When we hear about companies like OpenSea that are doing crazy amounts of business, they were started years ago. And at the time, it was weird and quirky, right? So that's that's sort of, I think, a good example of why quirky is a really useful frame when it comes to consumer. So I'm interested in what your decision tree looks like to differentiate between good quirky and not so good quirky. <laughs> yeah, I think with, I think what I've found is, you know, with good quirky, you know, is basically usually there's some element of something familiar and some element of something new. So, you know, for example, I'm an investor in a telehealth company in Mexico. And, you know, there, what I think is interesting is telehealth is pretty widely understood now, but it hasn't yet been translated to Latin American market. And so there's this element of this is quirky for Latin America, but we actually know a lot about how this works, what the business model looks like, how do the economics have to flow through. And so to me, that's like, that's a type of quirky I'm super comfortable with. You know, I also, what's another good recent example? You know, I invested in a company that is in the, that is in the cremation space. Okay. So they do, they do water-based cremations, which is a new technology that's now legal in 22 states. And it uses 90% less um, energy and has no CO2 emissions. And so in the states where it's legal, there's been a huge demand for it because a lot of people, A, like the idea of not being burned when they're, you know, after they're dying. It's a kind of a scary thing to think about. And they like the idea of it uses dramatically less energy. And so this is a company that is sort of building a model where instead of having to go to a funeral home, which by the way, they're all either run by private equity or mobs, like that's literally the, the industry. It's hyper predatory. They have a very transparent pricing model. It's very clear what their pricing is. And, you know, it's water-based cremation, which is better for the planet. And it's a more sort of humane process. So that's an example where that sounds really weird, right? Like water-based cremation, but it's something where, you know, it's not that different from what goes on today. And it has a lot of positive benefits. And so I have a lot of confidence in the fact that as it becomes legal in more states, as more people hear about it, people go, oh yeah, like I'd clearly rather take like a hot bath after I'm dead, then, you know, go into a furnace. Yeah. So tell me this with, with your, your investment that we're not naming that this unicorn status investment, what did you see early on in that one? Yeah. And it might be public by the time this episode comes out. It's like okay. coming out imminently. I mean, there is a good example of, I had known the founder, really tenacious, sort of really tenacious from a sort of work style perspective and knew that you know, he had sort of a chip on his shoulder in a, in a healthy way. Like it didn't seem like an unhealthy chip on his shoulder, which I think can be a problem. And then it was a space that, you know, he was essentially taking a model that someone else had had iterated on and he was bringing it to a new category of digital health. And so it was, again, this idea of this is quirky and a little weird, but not that quirky, not that weird. And so one of the, the things I found, which is really useful, I talk about this in my book, is that you know, what you want to do if you want to be able to predict better where sort of mainstream consumers are going is you want to look at where are the early adopters, sort of where is their normal right now? And so one thing I found has been really useful for consumer investing is I'm really integrated in a lot of communities that are kind of weird, right? They're kind of quirky communities. And they're people who, you know, they're seeing stuff at a different rate than us. They're sort of experiencing, they're more on the bleeding edge. And usually what happens is when those people think something has sort of reached, they're like, this is, you know, this is fully formed. This is a fleshed out thing. 
that's usually when the mainstream market adoption is just getting started and just getting ready, right? And so like my the example of this where I completely did a terrible job was crypto. You know, you know, what I should have done is when I saw a lot of really smart engineers I knew were getting excited about it. I should have, you know, I sh- I should have thought that like, well, clearly, like if this group is thinking this is normal, eventually other people will also think it's normal. And that gap was a dumb oversight on my part, but I think is a good example of where a lot of the people who are not engineers who I think made the right calls on crypto did a good job of realizing that, hey, there's this really smart, intelligent group of people who understand cryptography and computer science. And they're saying this is a huge deal and a breakthrough. I should listen to that and bring that sort of humility to that. So that's something now where, you know, when I know that someone's sort of an expert in a specific field, if they're excited about something, I try and do a really good job of listening and sort of lowering my ego in those situations. Interesting. By the way, we have to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Shane Snow, who got us together here. Yeah. Yeah. Shane's great. How do you meet Shane? I haven't, oh, well, when I was running TrackMaven, he was running Contently, which was sort of not a competitor, but in an adjacent space to us. So we met through work and then we've become really close friends. And he's a great example of someone from building like a creative community of like, you know, he was the one who introduced me to my book agent. We, he's been a feedback reader for my book. He's someone I talked about writing all the time. And so he's, I think, a really cool example of someone where we've had this like dynamic and like multifaceted you know, relationship that, you know, we hang out and we drink, but we also are like, we'll talk about serious stuff. Right. And so, but, you know, again, you know, I don't know where my writing career would be without him, which is sort of a wild thought, right. To think about with one person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in, in your mind, what's the value of getting a book completed? Cause it's, it's such a task. Yeah. You know, I'd say the thing that's interesting about writing a book is that I don't actually think it's like, it's, like complicated it's just hard like it just takes a lot of time right it's not something it's not that crazy to figure out it's pretty figure outable it's more that to your point it just takes a long time and so you know what's on the other side of that well i think there's a few things one that i talk to people about is you know if you've sort of done a book length examination of a topic you're going to understand something in a way that is so nuanced and contextual that A, you'll feel good about. It's kind of like when you get a degree, you're like, oh, I feel good about this. You feel like you've sort of you know, leveled up. And then two is those insights are really useful in other domains. So you know, a lot of the insights that I found when I was writing the book translated into me becoming a better investor. And so, and there's something that I know I have a unique um, level of sort of competence on that I know make me not only a better investor on an absolute basis, but also on a relative basis. The other thing which is really cool about a book that I think is unique is that books have a sort of permanence relative to the effort. And so you write the book and then, you know, you know, let's say the book does moderately well, it's in print for 10 years. You don't have to keep rewriting the book, right? And so over those years, you know, you know, you hear from people, you know, the book has a positive impact on people without you having to do any more work on it. And that's pretty cool if you think about just from a time leverage perspective, right? If you can have a positive impact and not have to like keep creating more in order to do that, that's just like a pretty cool way to have a positive influence in the world. And so that's something that I think a lot of authors really appreciate is, you know, there's authors who have books that are still in print 25 years later and people are discovering that book for the first time. The author 
they haven't worked on in 25 years, right? And that that's a cool and exciting dynamic. Well, hence when I called it your new book, you're like, well, it's, <laughs> totally. it's not that new. It's three, yeah, four years yeah. old. And yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing, right? Is that you know these books? I'm still you know I still do a lot of speaking. I still talk about the book a lot, but I actually reread the book once a year because otherwise I worry that I'm going to start like forgetting some things because I wrote it a long. You know, I, it came out three years ago. I wrote it four and a half years ago, right? Yeah, I'm interested in your view of the speaking business. There, mm-hmm. there's a lot more people that get a book published compared to people who have a successful book. And compared to people who have a successful book and and get asked to speak. When it comes to getting into that last category, successful book and asked to speak, what are some of your tips? <laughs> They're very different. Successful book I could talk about all day. It's, I'll start with the speaking. But with the speaking, I think the big thing is at bat. You know, I luckily sort of found my first wave of confidence when I was a kid doing This Is Really Dorky, but model government, which is different than model UN. Model government is like, is like, you know, you're doing like domestic politics and you give a lot of speeches. And I found that I, I could like do it and would like, it felt pretty safe and you do it in like increasingly bigger audiences. And I started getting really into it and I sort of built my confidence on just public speaking over time. And so by the time I was you know in my early twenties and I was running a startup and I would get invited to speak at things, I wasn't that scared of it. Like I was, I could work much more on the craft of it than sort of dealing with the stage fright of it, which I think for many people is the first step. But once you get to the point where you can just really think about the craft of speaking, every time you speak, you get better. Every time you speak, you get feedback from people, you get better. And so I just had a lot of at-bats. And so by the time I sort of moved into doing speaking as a professional, you know, I had probably done 150, 200, if not more speeches, Right. And so I'd done a lot of speeches as a CEO. You do all hands meetings. Those are technically speeches. So there's probably more than 200. And so I just had developed a sort of a baseline level of competency. And then once you sort of start leveling up, you know, you start getting more feedback. You have other speakers who give you feedback. There's sort of that sort of community. You start to think about it as a craft even more. So I do think that just purely being good at it is really important to getting paid for it. But luckily, I think with speaking, there's a lot of demand for speakers who don't want to get paid. So I think it's one of those things where if you want to get started, the the key thing to do is to just say yes and submit sessions to conferences that aren't going to pay you and just work on getting good. And I think, you know, there's sort of with speaking, there's the content and there's the delivery, you know, the sort of open secret with authors is, you know, we give the same speech over and over and over again, right? And what that means is that in the beginning, we sort of iterate on the content and the delivery. And then over time, we just sort of are iterating really on the delivery and like tweaking the content here or there. But really, like I've seen some best-selling authors who are giving the same speech for 10 years, right? And they're sort of, but over time, they iterate on the delivery and they get better and better at the delivery. And I mean, there's a million tips on delivery that I could we could talk through, but getting better at that and being intentional about that is really essential. And the whole reason why is that ultimately speaking is a word of mouth business. So most of my speaking gigs come from someone saw me speak at another event, right? And so as a result, you know, you have to be really great because, you know, you have to be that person who, you know, someone sees you and goes, wow, I want that person to come to my conference. Yeah, it's such solid advice. I think about, you know, also having, just having done a lot of speeches over time I didn't have that intimidation factor. And like, yeah, to me, like I've got major, like multi-year contracts. So like when I've spoken for free, 
I was so happy to speak for free because <laughs> because it's totally. like the ultimate sales pitch for the business, right? Totally. When people and, come and up that, afterwards trying to push business cards into my hand and saying they want to hire us. So, I mean, that's the thing, right? So speaking plays different roles for people, right? With 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 ironically, the economic model for most writers, and this is not true for all writers, and not necessarily even true for me, but it's most writers, the economic model is the book is sort of a entryway into the speaking, right? That's sort of how they think about the economics. A lot of authors also sort of do the book as an entryway into speaking and consulting. That's sure. a pretty common one you see. But, you know, for me, it's sort of, it's interesting, it's different. I view it as much more of a symbiotic thing where I do the writing and the writing helps me get speaking gigs, but it also helps me get into good startup deals and also helps me think better. And it gives me sort of reputation where a founder wants to have me in their deals. And then by doing the startup investing, that's a way to monetize the sort of everything else I'm doing without having to spend a lot of time doing things I don't like, which I don't like, you know, more power to you. I don't like consulting, right? I'm just, I'm like, oh, this is like too much work. There's too many personalities. I don't want to do it. And so for me, like, you know, since I didn't want to do the consulting, it was, well, what is sort of the other sort of leg of the stool that I can build? And so that was partly why I think the investing has actually worked really well as sort of a complement to the other stuff I do. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that I'm really interested in about your background is kind of how you see the future of content marketing. I mean, like, basically, this this whole podcast existed for this reason, right? I thought, yeah. you know, here's innovation and leadership feels like an evergreen subject, you know, this is this is something I feel reasonably confident a decade from now people are still going to be interested in, right? And if I just end up with enough of the kind of people that I'm interested in, there's probably going to be other folks interested in those people as well. Like, And originally it started just so we could have free advertising for our charity, Child Rescue, that combats child trafficking, right? And then now it's great because we're doing a 506C offering for our investment fund so I can publicly advertise it even though I can only take accredited investors, right? So I can put ads for our own investment fund on our own show, right? And yet... You know, I only I got into content marketing maybe 10 years ago as far as as a student, you know, reading it, becoming a HubSpot <laughs> client, these kind of things. I'm interested where you see content marketing going for the next decade, just from your deep experience. Oh, I have so many thoughts. So, okay, I'll sort of hit some bullet items and then we can go deeper if you want. I mean, I think that starting a new podcast is really hard. Like, I think there's just so many podcasts like yours that have been around for a while and people don't have that many podcasts on their sort of list, right? And so, especially in categories like business, where I think there's a ton of competition or tech, I think it's really hard to start a new podcast. But I see a lot of people still starting new podcasts. And I think that is, you know, unless you're doing something really different, I think that's often a mistake. So that's sort of one, you know, I think there's more of, I think there's going to be in podcasting sort of more value driven to the people who've been doing it for a while. I think as these platforms get better at discovery, like Apple's now launched all this new podcast stuff, that's going to help people like you have been doing it for a while. I think that you're seeing newsletters sort of similarly sort of hit a glut. And, you know, the thing that's sort of the better, the macro thing with this is that marketing trends sort of, you think about them as sort of supply demand of attention. And so basically, you know, I'd start doing LinkedIn content pretty early and sort of LinkedIn's pivot to be more of a content platform. And part of it was, I just, you know, basically finished the draft of the book. And I sort of knew, I was like, oh, there's this whole thing where like, you want to be early on a platform and so I started paying a lot of attention to it where there was way more demand for content than there was supply. And so I really quickly built a very large audience. I have 150,000 LinkedIn followers there. It's, you know, I've gotten millions and millions of views every year. Like it's the place where I have the most sort of attention. 
But that was because there's a supply demand imbalance. Right now, if you were to start on LinkedIn, it's so much harder. So the thing I always like to point to people is you want to be looking the same way when you're investing or starting a company where there's the most opportunity. And often that's actually the places where there's more white space, right? So doing TikTok a year ago, if you were a brand, makes a lot more sense than doing TikTok now, although I'd say TikTok probably still makes sense. But thinking about where are those places, where are those categories, where there is a lot of white space, where there's a lot of opportunity. You know, some of the places I think are interesting right now, I actually think there's some opportunities for traditional TV and film. So I think you're starting to see some thought leaders like, you know, Netflix did that documentary with Brene Brown. And that's obviously, it's Netflix, it's Brene Brown, it's sort of big. But I think there's a lot of opportunities that are sort of maybe a couple levels below that. And I actually think that's a pretty big opportunity. If you think about the huge amount of over-the-top streaming channels now that are looking for content, I think you'll see a lot of more like mid-level sort of author thought leader types doing stuff in that sort of world or that sort of realm. And then, you know, I think also, you know, generally I'm actually pretty bullish on traditional published books. I think that as there's more people self-publishing, I think traditional publishing actually gains in value just because, you know, if you're booking a guest for a morning show on TV and, you know, there's, you get tons of pitches from self-published authors when a book comes across your, you know, wire that is traditionally published, I think it actually sticks out more as a result. So the sort of macro thought is that you want to look for places where there's supply demand asymmetries and you want to then fill that supply. And that changes all the time, right? If you were early in Clubhouse, you could build a pretty big audience pretty quickly. That's interesting to think about, you know, because what's funny is everything can look crowded at the time, right? Like we started this show 600 episodes ago when there was like uh, 250,000 podcasts supposedly out there. And, you know, latest numbers I hear are over a million. I don't know if that's true or not. But, <laughs> but you know, basically 250,000 sounded like a lot back then. But compared to now, like I am glad that we got in and we got consistent and, and we're not the biggest show of all time, but we have kind of a compound interest effect of having 600 episodes, right? Yeah. And I think a couple of things that I like the most about what you said is different, you know, differentiate. How, how often are we going like, oh, look at what worked well, so well for them. Let's do one of those. And it's like, that's already Super, been... It's such a common thing, right? That's where people are like, oh, look, that's like a best practice. Yeah. Well, in so many areas of our life, that is a good idea. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right? Yeah. I think, I think the then, hard part is that it's at any place where there's consumer preferences or trends, it's not a good place, right? And to your point, everywhere else is a good idea, right? How to structure a business, follow those best practices. When you're dealing with consumers who are fickle, it is not a good idea. Yeah. It's like, well, that's already been done. You know, like, well, two things. And I feel like you, you touched on this earlier as we talked as well. Like my, my good buddy, Jay Davis, he's been on the show a couple of times. He makes these really funny YouTube videos that are like, it's like a five minute long advertisement. It's like an infomercial. <laughs> they're like infomercials, but they're so funny that you like don't you click off watch the pre-roll, yeah. right? And and he says like all the time people come in and they're like, I want a video like Nike. Or, I want a video like Apple. Yeah. And he's like, here's the thing. Once you, once you have a valuation like them, maybe we should talk about that. Except that they already did it. Why yeah. don't we talk about what Apple was doing when they were your size? Why don't we talk about totally. what Nike at, was doing when they were your size? Maybe that's like a better model for us. I mean, look follow. at Dollar Shave Club, right? Dollar Shave Club, you know, did that viral video. It launched, but it also launched a thousand copycats, right? And so it's sort of funny. I did a, for my book, when it came out three years ago, I did a trailer. And I sort of did like a copycat of the Dollar Shave Club sort of vibe. 
And I admitted, like I would, when I posted it, I was like, you know, this is heavily inspired by Dollar Shave Club. And it worked great because in books, no one had really done that. Startups, you know, there's like dozens of startups that did it afterwards and stopped working because people were like, oh, another startup. But in books, it was like, oh, this is kind of fun. This is, you know, different. So yeah, you know, Jonah Berger, the mm-hmm. Warren professor, his book, I think it's his book, Invisible Influence, where he says like, we want, we want like a little bit of familiarity and then we want some novelty. That's a big topic in my book. Yeah. And there's okay. this whole thing. Yeah. There's this whole sort of interesting human psychology around it. And it's been this concept that's pretty well studied in psychology. Like there's been a lot of books that have talked about it. The part that my book sort of differentiates on is I think that that balance of the familiar and the novel, getting that right, you can actually learn how to do. I think it's a pretty learnable skill. And I think that's important because I think for a lot of people, it's basically this idea of timing. I think for a lot of people, timing seems, whoa, right? Like, how do you possibly time an idea? And I, I break down in the book how I think you can learn how to do that. And I think it's it's pretty doable. Well, what's one principle from that? I mean, one of the ones that's the biggest, and I think feels sort of people both struggle to wrap their head around it and maybe think it's simpler than it is. And that's this idea of consumption. So for the book, what it is, is I interviewed 25 creative greats. These are Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, billionaires, mission star chefs. And the thing I found is I found these four patterns that they all did, one of which was consumption. So they all were huge consumers of their niche. And usually what this looked like was as a child, they, you know, Paul McCartney grew up in a musical household. J.K. Rowling was a huge consumer of books. Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO of Netflix, started his career as a clerk at a video store where he watched every single movie in the store. And then what's interesting, though, is that these people, as they continued their career, kept consuming. So famous jazz musicians listen to every single jazz record. Ted Sarandos still watches, you know, he told me three to four hours of film and TV every single day. And that consumption is really important because it allows you to understand where ideas fall in this familiarity novelty spectrum. There's other reasons why too, but to critically, it allows you to know, is this a fresh idea? Is this not? Is this too familiar? Is it too novel? How does this sort of break down into that? And, you know, I think we have a pretty strong urge as humans. We have a lot of incentives to be generalists, right? To go on Twitter and learn a little bit about a lot of things. But really, the important thing is that if you're in a creative field, you have to actually go very, very deep and specialize. So this isn't going and reading books on film theory, right? This is going and watching the damn movies, right? This is going and actually consuming the thing and letting your own brain sort of do that synthesis. This is if you're in technology, going and reading primary source academic research, if you want to understand something, right? Or in crypto, going and reading the white papers. And so that deep specialization is essential to learning the sort of skill of timing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the most fun things about this podcast for me is when I get to hear the same principle (laughs) in a different realm from people who don't know each other, you know? Totally. And like, so we talked about, I'm I'm a book nerd. I, you know, maybe listen to three or four books a week, right? And between all these interviews, you know, typically, you know, five to seven interviews plus my, you know, two, three, four books in a week, I get to see like a lot of this crossover, right? And like, do you know who, have you ever, do you know the name Howard Marks from Oak Tree Capital? Yeah. Right? He's got this incredible book called Mastering the Market Cycle. So, you know, he's one of the only authors endorsed by Warren Buffett, okay, his book, the, great, <laughs> the most important thing. And, and he says like, 
research shows just how terrible humans are at predicting the future. Like in general, mm-hmm. like, you know, essentially like the best, the best analysts on Wall Street are, are in general no better than flipping a coin, even though it's a full-time job, you know, this kind of stuff, right? But he says what that, the difference though that is possible while telling the future obviously is not according to, to history, he says it doesn't mean we can't take a gauge of where we're at. Like mm. he says like I might not, you know, like if the economy goes up like an escalator and down like an elevator, right? He says I may not be able to tell you when when it's going to tip over or what the bottom is when it's going to turn back but i should be able to tell you hey that's high hey is you know is the market kind of cool right now or or are things a little overheated right now and i can be more defensive or more aggressive depending like it's like i can't tell you the future but i could probably i could probably practice Mm. figuring out where we're at i love that like what you're saying about sales tech you're like hey listen due to this factor this factor and this factor we see this huge amount of late stage money coming in, which could help me go like, I can't tell you that sales tech is going to crash tomorrow, but I can tell you things are hotter than they used to be. Yeah, you know, like this totally. is, right? And so it's funny, it's it's fun for me to hear, you know, because he's the guy's buying like real estate and-, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm going to go buy that book. It sounds really interesting. It is actually is fascinating. So is his previous one. But so it's fun for me to hear that principle in your world based on your experience and like have this- the true principles show up in unrelated fields. Totally, totally. No, that's that's really cool. I mean, that's, by the way, partly, this is a longer discussion than we have time for, but I am, uh, I am, I hate public markets. So, you know, a financial advisor would, would have a fit looking at my balance sheet because it's so over-rotated into private illiquid investments of various types. But part of the reason why is I find that I get overly emotional to the little whims of the market. And so I've learned that I need to be pretty locked up, which startup investing, like I do a bunch of private real estate investing, like that is actually really good for me. Because otherwise, like something goes down, I'm like, we have to sell. Like, and I just can't handle it. And, you know, that's actually, you know, something that, you know, to the point around sort of where we are in market timings and like how to position it and like all that stuff. I mean, it's part of why I just can't do it because I just get too worked up. But, but look at this. <clears throat> I'm going to try and make you feel a little bit better about this, okay? Okay. So when you think about doing wealth investments, we'll, we'll, we'll quote the same guys I've been talking about so far. Warren Buffett says risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. Yeah. So your, like, your deep expertise in startups, specifically technology startups, means that you've got things in your circle of competence that are not in the circle of competence of a lot of other people, including a lot of people who thinks it is. Right? Yeah. So you, you, like, you are showing up... And, and back to Howard Marks. So Howard Marks was at University of uh, Chicago back when when efficient market theory got developed, which for anybody who's not familiar, it's this idea that nobody could do better than the market because everyone, because humans are rational. And since we have the same information because they're public companies, that means that everybody knows the same stuff. And since humans are rational, we must be pricing things. So whatever price a security is must be what it's actually worth because it's collective wisdom. Okay. It's if you can believe it, like really smart people with PhDs not only believe this, but convinced millions of millions of investors that this could actually be real. Well, so what what would act even though that idea has you know since been shown to be like widely bogus, there is some truth to it. And Howard Marks talks about this and, and implies what you're talking about, where he says, Hey, listen, in very transparent markets where all sorts of people who are investing like you have the same information as you. Like maybe you should have a hard look in the mirror and go like, 
why do I think I'm so much smarter? You know, mm. like if there's a lot of transparency like public markets, right? Why is it that you are so convinced, Jess, <laughs> that you have this edge if you've got like, if you don't have information or insight that they don't have, why are you so confident? You know, yeah. where totally. private real estate, private tech investing, things like this, that opportunity to have information or insight due to expertise that not everyone else has is a legitimate reason to believe you could outperform. And look, I feel better. That's good. I mean, that's, and that's the thing is that it's a part of it. The hard part is that's worked well. So I'm like, I'm also like, I'm like mm, I, this public market thing doesn't, I just don't even want to touch it. But I do think there's an interesting discussion to be had too, at some point around, you know, um, I'm inviting myself back on is around like this idea of sort of investing to match your emotional, both needs and wants. Right. So I think a lot of times we sort of have this cultural sort of maximalist attitude of you should you should invest in the most efficient, effective way possible. But I think that takes off the fact that for a lot of people, certain investing methodologies are incredibly stressful, right? And so for me, I find that like, I'm actually okay giving up some returns for having increased like life satisfaction. Like that's actually fine with me, totally fine with me. And I think we have this, I think we have this weird dialogue around money in our culture where there's this assumption that's always about how do you get that last incremental sort of benefit. And I think that's actually kind of problematic because you can end up in a situation where people invest in things that cause them a lot of stress or distress that they don't need to be investing. Like some people investing in startups causes them a lot of stress, right? But they're like, oh, I have to do it because all my friends are doing it. I like, no, you don't have to do anything. Like, you know, just like do what you like doing. So. Yeah. Listen, I know we're out of time. So if we need to, we can just cut it off here. But, but I'm interested in your decision tree for your private real estate investing. How do you, how do you make your decisions there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do got a bop, but my okay. I'll, so I'm private real estate investing. I don't think my decision tree is as good as it should be. <laughs> I have I have done I invested a bunch right before COVID, and so I have some deals that have done really well and some deals that have done really bad. Nothing has been a zero, which I think is like a pretty good sign. But basically, my decision tree historically has been I like pretty aggressive return projections because I'm like, well, even if they're like wrong, it's still good. So I'm like kind of want people to be a little confident. Because I'm actually okay with them being wrong, and then I try and be theoretically conservative if they're under if they're levered on how levered they are. And I also like kind of weird markets. So you know, one of my best real estate deals is I invested in a company that does leasebacks to schools, and so they buy the school building, lease it back to the town, and so like it's government credit. I'm like that's super smart, and like those guys seem super smart at this. So like that kind of stuff I like too. But I'm I am not like good at that yet. Like I'm trying to. So Jess, I might have to call you. No, no, we're, we we just need to have another interview. I'm going to let you go, <laughs> but we need to have you back on the show. For sure, this is awesome. Thank you, Jess. Okay, bye, everyone.